Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. My name's Neil Selwyn and welcome to a special episode of Meet the Education Researcher. This is the first time in 13 months I've been able to record a face-to-face interview. So I was really pleased to be talking this time around with Dr. Jason Beach, who's just joined us in Monash from the University of San Andreas in Argentina. Now, Jason works in the area of comparative education and global policy. So I grabbed him for a chat about what he's been recently working on. But first off, I wanted a quick introduction to his area of study. So what does working in the area of comparative education involve? If we think about the history of education as being involved with education across time, comparative education is involved with education across space. So again, the name comparative in a way comes from this uh, tradition or older tradition in which typically in places like Columbia or the Institute of Education in London, you would have like the comparative education people were experts on a given area of the world. So you had the expert on Eastern Europe, on Latin America, on Africa. It was very much about comparing one country with the other, and it was very much about uh, finding practical solutions, and uh, now it's changed a lot. Now, now if you go to a typical comparative education conference, you will find a lot about PISA, a lot about globalization, about global forces, and uh, not so much comparative in a strict sense, but rather thinking about uh, networks, about uh, the work of of companies around the world, technology companies, and how they influence education, those kind of things. And how has this idea of space changed over the years? Because presumably now we're not just talking about countries, but the idea of space has expanded? Well, yeah, I think, I mean, that's something I'm very interested in, is, is like theorizing space and trying to understand uh, how, how do we interpret space. And uh, as I was saying, when, when, when the notion of globalization started to become uh, popular and, and processes of what we call globalization started happening, uh, comparative education changed a lot and it, and it became very much so. So the notions of space started to be made more complex and, and we started to doubt about the idea of thinking of space just as divided into nations. And in, in two ways, no? in one way is trying to understand other ways in which the world is organized. So, so when you look at the work of UNESCO, the World Bank, or McKinsey, or, or Intel, or, or Microsoft, is it really important if, if their offices are based in Paris, in Washington, or in Seattle? Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent it is, but <laughs> there's other things that are important. So this notion of a networked space, and uh, which has very different also theories within it. And then even within the nation states, uh, you have like, for example, schools that will become like things like the International Baccalaureate, where, where individual schools get involved with this global kind of uh, institution. So... Again, the nation state is still very important and, and it's not we shouldn't discard it. But clearly, I, I, my view is that we cannot understand education policy and power in education only by looking at the nation state. Well, I was really interested in your own particular take on comparative education. You say that it's kind of you know, it covers a lot of a multitude of sins. I mean, what's your own particular style of, of comparative education? What particular questions and bigger issues are you concerned with? In particular, I'm very interested in understanding global policy spaces. And, and from a 
view of, of, I would say, of the sociology of knowledge and understanding how certain ideas that become common sense around the world of how, what it means to be an educated person, for example, or how we should practice education, how we should finance education, become, become common sense. So, so, for example, the notion of a curriculum based on competencies or notions such as respect for diversity. Or you can see now in the English language how, for example, McKinsey or the World Bank or UNESCO, very different organizations, talk about what we used to call students, now they're called the learners. So, I mean, those kind of shifts, I'm interested in that. And, and then, of course, how those are translated very different in very different places. And their language is interesting because you have like concepts like lifelong learning. In English, it's a beautiful alliteration, you know, lifelong learning. Everybody wants to live a long life and learn, and it sounds great. But it doesn't have a translation in Spanish, for example. So in Spanish, it didn't have that effect. So you can't create a ministry of aprendizaje a lo largo de toda la vida. It doesn't sound right, okay? So the translation in Spanish, becomes, and so it's interesting to see how, how these things get, get translated very different in different parts of the world. So how ideas and how discourses travel and this idea of mobilities and, and flows, I mean, it's, it's a really rich area to do research in. I mean, let's move on to a couple of your recent projects. I was really interested, you mentioned the International Baccalaureate before. You had a project called Multiple Internationalizations, the Idiosyncratic Enactment of the IB in Costa Rica, Peru and Buenos Aires. I love this idea of idiosyncratic uh, enactment. Can we unpack it a little bit? The, the, the idea of enactment is very much based on uh, Stephen Ball's theories of enactment and this view of, of, in a way, against the idea of implementation and seeing micropower and how power... Uh, the complexity of how as ideas move, they transform the places to which they move, but they're also transformed in those places. So, and, and that project was really, a, a, oh, it was wonderful in the sense that I had interested in these issues. I had the opportunity of having one educational model as the diploma program of the IB that is quite standardized, not 100%, but quite standardized, being uh, enacted at the same time in three very different societies. Okay, yeah, they're Latin American, they've got some things in common. Uh, so so it was basically a great opportunity to see how, for example, in Costa Rica, it was very, promo this was the IB in state schools. So it was financed and promoted by an NGO, by civil society, and it was a very interesting way in which they promoted it, and they had a lot of support, and, and how it, they got involved with the state. In Peru, it was, they had created this fascinating, from a sociological perspective, colegios de alto rendimiento, like high-performing schools in each of the regions in Peru, and th these are like uh, students sleep in the school, they're there for six days a week. It's, it's, it's a really like these kind of total institutions where they want to create the new leaders of Peru. But they have to come from state schools. So this idea of social mobility is very interesting. And within that, they included the IB as part of the program. In Buenos Aires, it was like a mess and it didn't really work because they didn't manage it well. So it's very interesting to see how the different political cultures in these three places had a very strong influence on, on what the IB meant and what they were looking for. Uh, and it wasn't so much internationalization or the, this international mindedness, but kind of the idea as a certificate of quality education, as a something of mo social mobility, because it's the elites generally in those places that have access to the IB. So, so how it got transformed where in places like the US, it would be very different, for example. Yeah, yeah, which brings us back to these ideas of kind of power and hierarchies. And I, I was interested you mentioned Stephen Ball's ideas of enactment. Not, I'm interested, how does kind of Ball's theory, which was kind of formulated in London and the UK and Europe, how does that travel to Latin America? And talking this idea of how, how ideas and knowledge travels, I mean, 
Presumably there were things that um, were lost in translation or, or kind of re, you had to rethink through? I think uh, Stephen has worked quite a lot in Latin America. He has a lot of students from Latin America, so his ideas have been very much used there. And of course, they are, they are transformed. They're, they're different. You know, it's, it's very, I actually had quite a few discussions with this about how his view, for example, no, of his critique of neoliberalism and of, of is very much based on the notion of what was there before was this kind of very equitable system that you more or less had in the UK, maybe something like that. But this idea of kind of nostalgic, if you want, or something before, but in some parts of Latin America, you didn't have that before. So it was so in terms of ethical views of that, it, it's very different. And yeah, it's, it's of course, in so basically, I would say that societies are very, very unequal. But I think I, I still think that his theories are malleable enough to kind of look at different different places. Yeah, absolutely. And now this second project, which I was really interested in, was global middle class parenting strategies. I mean, we hear a lot about the global middle class now, but you're looking at families from Hong Kong, London, Buenos Aires and Tel Aviv. I mean, first off, I mean, can you describe for the uninitiated what this idea of the GMC is? I mean, what types of families were you actually interviewing? Um, like professionals, with with higher education, usually like MBA, graduate studies that work in high positions in multinational corporations and that tend to move around the world. So they work for four years in Buenos Aires, four years in London, four years in uh, Hong Kong or whatever. Um, so so one of the main characteristics of these families is is like that they are they're middle classes because they're not the owners of the, of the companies, but they're, they're very well positioned usually and uh, they're very educated and they tend to move all the time and, and they're always expecting to move again. So their careers kind of do that. So and, in, and in, in our case, we were looking at their parental strategies. So we also added that we wanted to look at people that had children and, and understand how they were um, seeing uh, their parenting in terms of, of class reproduction, in terms of trying to reproduce their, their privilege and their advantages, uh, and, of, and also their anxieties no, towards their children. And so what role did schooling and education play in those strategies and those anxieties? Actually, it, it was interesting because the, the empirical gave us a very different answer from what we expected. We expected most of them to go to IB or international schools, and they didn't. Uh, they had very different strategies on what they did. Of course, this was very exploratory. We were only a few people, and, and, and we can't generalize. But, like, for example, we had f Malaysian families in Hong Kong that wanted to go to the local system because they had a Chinese background, and they want to use that opportunity for their kid to learn Chinese. So, basically, what we found was that they we, we created this concept of um, cosmopolitan startup capital. No, So, they were t kind of creating this capital for their kids, cultural and social capital that was not necessarily useful for that place, but thought about how can I best use the resources I have available in this in this space I'm here for this, on this local place for four years uh, to kind of enhance the chances of my child in the future. And there, there were like a tension between the mobility, which was, so they wanted to create mobile kids or, or kids that had the ability to be mobile if they wanted to, because that mobility was what gave them their privilege. But on the other hand, they were very anxious about educating rootless kids because most of these people, when they were kids, they were rooted in one place. So you had very interesting things of, of people like uh, promoting certain national uh, or, or it could be national in the sense of, of a nation, a country, or it could be like Jewishness, for example. 
all of those kids maybe never went or only went to that country a few their their original Puerto Rico for example only went there a few times but their parents were Puerto Rican in Buenos Aires and they wanted to make sure their kids understood learned Spanish there for example no generation of the local but it has to be the right type of local I love that idea I'm really interested in your recurring use of Buenos Aires as a, as a research site. I mean, what is particularly interesting about Buenos Aires in terms of a case study of how education is done? Well, Buenos Aires is a very interesting city in many ways. I mean, one of the things is, if you look at it historically, Buenos Aires in the late and the early 1900s was uh, like two thirds of the population were immigrants, mostly European immigrants. It was a in the first year, decades of the 1900s, it was a very rich country, very rich city, and uh, it's, it looks like Paris, like the Paris of South America, like kind of a dislocated place, no, where everybody felt European. And that was, in a way, very much, so there's an identity, a very much, uh, an identity that is not very much linked to Latin America, but more to Europe. But then around the 70s, uh, the social structure in Argentina in general and in Buenos Aires started to really crumble and, and inequality started growing a lot. Uh, poverty started growing, um, violence and crime. I kind of, okay, now we are Latin Americans. No? So, and on the other hand, migration started to come back again, but not from Europe, but more from uh, Latin America and now from Africa, from China. And this has created a lot of tensions and, and, that, and that you can see them in the educational system. So it's, it's very, very interesting in terms of identity, you know, and uh, poverty and inequalities. Uh. Well, that's fascinating because I was going to ask you about what you're expecting to find in Melbourne. You've just moved to Melbourne. I mean, how do you think Melbourne might be similar or different? I mean, I can see a lot of similarities to what you've just described there in terms of Buenos Aires. I mean, I, I, I can't say so much about Melbourne yet, but uh, I, I, I do think and I thought about writing a paper <laughs> about Australia and, uh, uh, and Argentina as two kind of dislocated places, no? I mean, places that, that have this identity of being more like Western European, but they are in Asia or whatever, the Pacific. And, uh, uh, and, and I think, again, I mean, the relationship with indigenous, you know, both countries have very similar um, take on that in the terms of not having taken much of the indigenous in, in, in their identity construction or the national constructions. Uh, and uh, the indigenous people being kind of an obstacle in the in the way of progress, which is not exactly the same, for example, in places like Mexico or Bolivia or other places or Peru, where where you had like bigger indigenous communities and civilizations. So I mean, though, I don't I don't know. And, but yeah, I mean, what one big difference I think that I find in Melbourne, and I'm really interested about it, is. The, the influence of Asia, which we don't have so much in, in Buenos Aires. And also the influence of space. I think space in Australia is completely different. You'll, you'll have a great time. Right. Thanks ever so much for taking the time to do this, Jason. It's, it's great to have you in the faculty and I look forward to learning a lot more about your work. Thanks, Neil. It's a pleasure.